On today's episode, we have a Spielberg showcase, starting with Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981, followed by Jurassic Park from 1993. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. You know, as I mentioned, we've got some Steven Spielberg movies to talk about today. And you know, it got me thinking, you know, I know... Raiders of the Lost Ark was inspired by a lot of movies before it, and Jurassic Park actually inspired a lot of movies after it, I feel like. And so I just kind of wanted to go through some remakes that have happened in the history of movies and just, you know, the goods and the bads and all of that. So basically, some of the worst remakes out there are like Psycho from 1998, which was a shot-for-shot remake of the 1960 movie, but it was in color, and it had Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates, and I really didn't like that movie. It was it was just nothing. It didn't do anything to change the original, and the original was fine the way it is, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't really understand why they made that movie at all. And then we have Planet of the Apes, which was remade in 2001 by Tim Burton, and it really did not capture the essence of the original movie at all from 1968. You know, it had Mark Wahlberg in it, and it was just all around a piss-poor movie, and I saw it in theaters, and I just, I absolutely did not like it. Then we have Point Break, which the original came out in 1991, and then they remade it in 2015, and I never actually saw the remake of that movie, but I heard basically from all accounts that it was pretty fucking terrible, and I mean, the original Point Break was pretty decent. I find it funny that it's been pointed out that it's essentially, you know, The Fast and the Furious from 2001 is essentially like the same basic outline of a story as Point Break, and it's just, it's amusing to me. You know, you've got this undercover cop, you you know, he's trying to infiltrate these bad guys that are robbing things, and it's just very strange to me that that happened, and I don't know if that was their intention or if it just happened to work out like that. And then we have Red Dawn, and the original came out in 1984, and I absolutely love that movie. I think it's great, and it's got Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen and Jennifer Grey and, you know, a handful of people. It's a very cool movie, It's basically what would happen if, I think it's Russia invaded the U.S. on U.S. soil. And all of a sudden, you know, at the beginning of this movie, you've got this great imagery of these men in parachutes coming down outside of this classroom. And they're there to take it over, basically. So, I don't know. I mean... I never saw the remake, but I know they shot some of it in my hometown, and that's cool, but I also heard it was legitimately terrible, so I won't be checking that one out. But one note I will make is that basically almost all, not all of them, but almost all horror remakes are fucking awful. They don't 
ever do a good job with them. It's just a cash grab usually, and they don't execute them very well, and it just kind of sucks, you know? So some of the best remakes out there are Ocean's Eleven. The original came out in 1960, and when they remade the one for 2001, you know, it wasn't the same movie at all. It didn't have any of the same characters other than the main character, Danny Ocean. And it was just basically a very well-made movie and it didn't need to be a remake, but it was just, they took the idea. So they had to credit it with being a remake and all that stuff. But it was, from what I understand, a very different movie. And then we had The Thing from 1982, which was a remake of The Thing from Another Planet, I think is what it was called, from 1951. And John Carpenter made the the remake, and he really did an excellent job building the tension and basically just really making it a scary story and It's very intense. I just absolutely love it. So then we have The Mummy, and the original for that one came out in 1932, and I've seen that one, and it is not great. I really don't think it's a very good movie, but they've remade it several times, and the one that's the best is the 1999 version with Brendan Fraser, and he really is fucking great in that movie. It's, It's basically, it feels like an Indiana Jones movie, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's more, uh, it's more about the desert, the pyramids and things like that. So it's not, it's not entirely Indiana Jones. And last but not least, we have the Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004, based on the movie Dawn of the Dead from 1978. And Zack Snyder actually made the remake to this one. And he did a fucking spectacular job on this movie. It's really great. I mean, he added the element of the whole undead people running instead of just walking or sauntering or whatever you want to call it and it really added a lot of intensity and it you know it modernized the tale and it was everything that a remake should be basically so i guess we'll just dive right into the movies now starting with raiders of the lost ark released on june 12th 1981 and it's frequently stylized now as indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark But that's only just to reduce confusion and make sure people know what they're in for when they watch the movie. So this is the only Indiana Jones movie where his name doesn't originally appear in the title. And after, you know, several years, they they basically just started releasing VHSs and DVDs and Blu-rays with the title, you know, adding Indiana Jones's name to the front cover to make it clear to new viewers that it's an Indiana Jones movie. And it's the first one, so it's probably the best one, but I'm not going to have that debate right now. I'm just I'm just saying it's one of, if not the best, Indiana Jones movie. The other one that would be in the running is The Last Crusade, which is spectacular. So it was directed by Steven Spielberg, as I mentioned. His filmography leading up to 1993 included Jaws, which was a huge hit, albeit with some slow spots here and there, but it was still a classic. It was a great movie. You know, obviously it's a about a shark that is basically causing chaos in this little town and they have to try and get it and kill it and it's pretty awesome. He did Close Encounters of the Third Kind and I just could not get into that movie. I don't know what it was about it. It did not impress me at all and it didn't have a very great story to it. I didn't feel like it was just, I mean, it was an interesting enough concept, but they just didn't really execute that well, in my opinion. He made the movie 1941, and 
I've never once heard someone say anything about this movie at all. Definitely not that it was good, and it totally flopped, so I doubt I'll watch it anytime soon. I don't really have anything to go on to make me want to see it. He made E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and that used to scare the absolute shit out of me as a child. I don't know what it was about it. There was just a lot of scary imagery and stuff. I don't know what it is. I mean, I've watched it recently, and it wasn't scary, but when I was little, I was terrified by the shit that was going on in that movie. So then he made Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was actually a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was probably the weakest of the original trilogy, but honestly, the whole scene where the guy pulls somebody's heart out of their chest and it's still beating is like one of the coolest moments in movies for me. I don't know why it's ridiculous, but I just love it. And you know, he made Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and it's as good or better than Raiders, probably. And Sean Connery is fantastic in it as Indiana Jones's dad. And last but not least for this round, you know, he he made Hook and I could never really get into Hook. I didn't really think it was that great. I know this is like blasphemous, but I was never a big Robin Williams fan at all. I don't know why. It's just, I mean, I like some of his movies, but for the most part, I wasn't a big fan. So for the writer, we have Lawrence Kasdan, and he did a bunch of Star Wars movies. For instance, he did The Empire Strikes Back, which is probably the best Star Wars movie ever made, and it was previously covered on this podcast. For the next one, he wrote Return of the Jedi, which was the weakest of the original trilogy, but it was still a classic. It was still an enjoyable movie. He did Star Wars The Force Awakens, and I like the movie, honestly, but it's a complete rehashing of Star Wars A New Hope, you know? It's, I mean, it's the first Star Wars movie just retold. If you really watch for it, you can see a lot of similarities. He also did Solo, a Star Wars story, easily a bottom five Star Wars film. It killed the anthology Star Wars movies, and it was really supposed to be kicked off with Rogue One that they were going to start doing these, and then all of a sudden they came out with Solo, and it just wasn't that good. And last but not least, Lawrence Kasdan did The Big Chill, which has a much better soundtrack than, you know, the actual movie itself. I mean, it's the movie's not that great, in my opinion. I don't really think there's much to it. So the story by credit went to George Lucas, and he obviously had the story by credit on The Empire Strikes Back and all the other Indiana Jones movies. He did Willow, and I didn't really like that one or understand the hype behind it at all. It's just really not my kind of movie. And Philip Kaufman had the other story by credit, just to make sure we're crossing all our T's and dotting all our I's here. For the producer, we have Frank Marshall, and he made Paper Moon, which is a great movie about this guy and a little girl who are grifters, and they go around swindling people, and it's legitimately entertaining. I really recommend checking it out. He also did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a truly great flick. The way they animated it and made it seamlessly blend with the live action stuff it's just it seemed like everybody was really interacting with each other even if they were interacting with cartoons they really did just an amazing job with that movie it's really cool i i definitely check that one out or revisit it if you've already seen it for the score we have composer john williams who is the greatest film composer of all time you know i mean i i've talked about him in multiple episodes so i won't dive into what he's done but suffice it to say he is a great 
composer and he has a great resume. For the cast, we have Harrison Ford, who plays Henry Indiana Jones, and he was in the Star Wars movies as Han Solo. He was in Blade Runner, and honestly, I have that movie and I like it, but there are stretches in it that are boring as shit. I mean, it's a really well-regarded movie, but I don't, I, I can't recommend it to somebody. You know what I mean? I can't say, yeah, you'll love this because I don't know that you will if you watch it. He was obviously in the other Indiana Jones movies since he is Indiana Jones. He was in The Fugitive, which is probably one of my favorite thrillers of all time. There's just so much to love about it. It's such a cool story. He was in Air Force One, and that one's basically just die hard on a plane, you know, but John McClane is the president of the United States, and he's, you know, trapped, and he's trying to figure out how he can get the better of these terrorists that have taken over. Next up, we have Karen Allen, who plays Marion Ravenwood, and she was in National Lampoon's Animal House, and I can't really remember that movie, but... Apparently, her performance in that movie is what got her the part of Marion, so that's pretty cool. She was in the movie Scrooged with Bill Murray, and I can't really watch it regularly, but I'm I, I'm just so indifferent to that movie. I don't really find it that funny, but it's still something I'll put on at Christmas and barely pay attention to. And she was also in The Sandlot, which is one of my all-time favorite movies from my childhood. I really love The Sandlot, and I still watch it regularly, like almost every year, I think and it's it's a really good one it's just about baseball and it's great so next up we have paul freeman who plays renee belloc and he was in mighty morphin power rangers the movie from 1995 and i would never have guessed that he was in that movie he was also in a movie called double team which stars jean-claude van damme and dennis rodman and it is exactly as amazing as you would think it would be he was also in Hot Fuzz, which was a great Edgar Wright movie with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. You know, they've done a bunch of movies like Shaun of the Dead and things like that. Then we have John Reese davies who plays Salah, and he was in The Living Daylights, which is by far the best Timothy Dalton James Bond movie. And by the way, there are only two Timothy Dalton James Bond movies, and License to Kill is pretty terrible. He was in The Lord of the Rings movies as Gimli, and I like those movies okay, but I can't get into them on the level that other people seem to. I just, I'm not quite there. And he was also in Aquaman, which was a pretty decent movie considering what a shit show the DC universe has become. So then we have Ronald Lacey, who plays Major Arnold Tote, and Denholm Elliott, who plays Marcus Brody. For casting notes, there are quite a few for this one. Initially cast as Indiana Jones, Tom Selleck was forced to withdraw due to his contractual obligations to the television series Magnum P.I., among the actors considered for the role of Indiana Jones included Sam Elliott, Bill Murray, Jeff Bridges, Christopher Guest, Barry Bostwick, Mark Harmon, Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Jack Nicholson, Michael Bean, Sam Shepard, David Hasselhoff, and as I mentioned, Tom Selleck. Harrison Ford was cast less than three weeks before principal photography began. Among the actresses considered for the role of Marion were Jane Seymour, Mary Steenburgen, Valerie Bertinelli, Stephanie Zimbalist, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Deborah Winger. Sean Young was used as Marion in screen tests with Tom Selleck. 
Danny DeVito was approached to play Salah, but was unable to due to commitments to the show Taxi. For the plot synopsis, we have a professor-slash-archaeologist tries to beat a gang of Nazis in a race to find a powerful biblical relic known as the Ark of the Covenant. Alright guys, we're gonna fucking dive right into this movie, so I gotta know... Is Indiana Jones to be credited with the popularizing of the fedora as worn by neckbeards the world over? Because if they think that they look like him, they've got to be fucking joking. So by the way, young Doc Ock is in this movie, Alfred Molina to the uninitiated. They're going through the wilderness to find a temple, and they find poison-tipped darts that are still fresh and poisonous after three days, and they kind of act like that means something, but... I don't really know what a good poison dart shelf life really should be. So they're in South Africa in 1936, according to the words that come up on the screen. I like the touch of not showing Indiana Jones's face until when he stops a man from shooting him by using his bullwhip. My question is, are bulls not already angry enough? Why are we whipping them? Or... Is that why they're mad to begin with? I don't know. So they go into this cave and it's just full of fucking cobwebs and it's like, Jesus, fucking clean up once in a while, you know? Indy finds a couple of tarantulas on his back and he gets them off of him pretty quick. And then Doc Ock goes to have Indy check his back and he's got like a comically large number of tarantulas on him and you can't even fucking see his actual back at all. There's so many fucking spiders. So I love that Indy just knows so fucking much about these ancient ruins, like staying out of the booby trap light, which is literally just a beam of light that when broken, it initiates a defense mechanism of some sort. I mean, how does one accomplish making that work? It's basically like the infrared laser sensors on my garage door opener that makes the opener stop if something passes in the way while it's going down, but I don't know what what they could possibly do to make that work. So anyway, as Indy sees this golden idol that he's looking for, he knows that the area has to be fucking rigged with just all sorts of shit. It's a very famous scene where he dicks around forever as he goes to replace the idol with a weighted bag, and the bag doesn't work, so Indy has to run like the Dickens. So he set off this chain reaction by messing with the idol, and now the whole fucking place is going into lockdown, and there's an opening in the floor that Doc Ock is on the other side of. Doc convinces Indy to toss him the idol so Indy can take the whip and swing over with both of his hands free, but Doc double-crosses Indy and just kind of leaves him to die. So Indy jumps and he's got to rush to beat this door that's slowly closing, but this fucking door, I swear it changes to multiple different random heights with different cuts as we watched, like... It's down to being maybe a foot or two open, and then all of a sudden you look again and it's like three feet open, and it doesn't make any fucking sense. So obviously Indy makes it since, you know, it's very early in the movie, and he finds Doc Ock dead on the other side of the door and takes the idol from him. So it looks like Indy has stuck his whips into Doc Ock's business for the last time. That's a... Spider-Man 2 reference, if you like that. So we get one of the most memorable scenes in cinema history as he's chased by a rolling spherical boulder. It's so fucking cool. A little bit of trivia on that. Apparently the boulder they used was actually made of fiberglass, plaster, and wood. A little bit more trivia, Harrison Ford actually outran the boulder ten times himself because the scene was shot twice from five different angles. Ford's stumble in the scene was deemed to look authentic and was left in. 
All I can think is just how long it would fucking take to build and set up all of these things in these temples. For instance, they can step on a part of the floor and it shoots a poison dart at them, and that would just take fucking forever to get right. The easiest thing I would think to do would be to have someone step on a rock in one place and have someone blow a dart from another place at the same time and just make it look like it was the work of some sort of elaborate mechanism. And shit, I'm kind of actually destroying the illusions of this movie. I'm sorry. So on his way out of the cave, Indy gets stopped by a bunch of angry-looking natives with bows and arrows. And this bad guy, Belloc, is with the natives, and he takes the idol from Indy. Belloc seems like a real run-of-the-mill, villainous douchebag type. He smugly reminds Indy that Indy briefly had what he wanted, and Belloc took it from him as always. So Indy gets the fuck out of there when their guard is down, and they chase him. And he heads towards the water... And his pilot friend is there fucking around fishing and has to drop everything to get the plane going in time. And as they fly away, Indy finds a large pet snake of the pilots hanging out in his part of the little plane. And I would just absolutely lose my fucking mind in that scenario. I can't fucking imagine having that happen. Not cool, dude. So in Indy's class, where he is a professor sometime later, all of these female students are fucking horny as shit for him. One girl has love and you written on her eyelids and deliberately shows him. Honestly, I'd guess that if it was me teaching, it'd probably be like eat and shit on her eyelids, but... You know, what can you do about that? Naturally, he's taken aback by all of the attention, but if I recall correctly, old indie boy doesn't really shy away from younger women, which we'll find out more about in a bit. A man named Marcus comes to see Indy after class, and he leads him to these army intelligence agents in another room. The men want Indy to help them understand what the Nazis are trying to find, and they seem to be a little concerned because the Nazis seem to want whatever it is that they're looking for really fucking bad. Indy realizes that they've found at least the beginnings of what could lead to the Ark of the Covenant, but there are some pieces that still need to fall into place for them to find it. Basically, the Ark has surfaced and disappeared and resurfaced many times throughout history, and it just seems like it doesn't go over well when people find it for some reason. I guess the Nazis want the Ark because they believe it will make their army invincible. They talk about this old mentor of Indy's named Ravenwood, who is MIA. Indy clearly knows a lot about this Ark shit, but he says that Ravenwood is the real expert, and he knows that they need this medallion that Ravenwood has, which is a significant piece of the puzzle for finding the Ark. These men want Indiana Jones to find the Lost Ark, which I feel like should be obvious by now, but I thought I'd make sure you knew what was going on. And as Indy's getting ready to leave, Marcus seems like he really wants Indy to bitch out on the job for some reason, but Indy's like way too excited for all of that. And I feel like it's kind of the premise of the movie for him to go after this arc, so let him go, dude. On his plane ride out, Indy looks pretty fucking snazzy in a more traditional navy suit, and the other suit he was wearing in class looked a little more old-timey, kinda. I don't know, it didn't look as good. I love the way they use the fucking old maps with the red line to show the course of his travels as he's flying around. I don't know what movie was the first to do that, though, because you see it a lot, but it's a really cool way to show progress on a journey. 
I must admit, I'm always quick to say things rip off Indiana Jones, but Indiana Jones does rip off its share of movies, so I can't really fault the other movies. Like, everything is usually pretty much just derivative of something else that came before it, basically. But at what point do we give credit for popularizing stuff? Like, obviously the movie Hancock was inspired by a lot of superhero stories, but obviously the only reason anyone likes superheroes now is because of the movie Hancock, right? Anyway... Hey, look, it's Scotty Smalls' mom, and she's in a drinking contest of some sort at a bar in Nepal, and her name is Marion Ravenwood, played by Karen Allen. She wins the drinking contest, and that makes her my kind of lady. I actually was thinking to myself as I saw her that even though she's not like an upper echelon hottie necessarily... She's still pretty fucking good looking in this movie and way out of my league. Is it safe for me to assume that there are no female celebrities out there that I actually have a chance with? Fuck. Alright, well, alright. I'll just, I'll live with that. Okay, so Indy comes in and he's clearly had sex with Marion in the past and she was apparently super young, like underage, and Indy allegedly took advantage of her, FYI, but he's our hero and I guess we're just supposed to forget that. Couldn't the story have just been that she was too young and wanted Indy and he spurned her? Wouldn't that work without making him seem like a total scumbag, you know? Anyway, Indy's looking for the medallion that belonged to her father, the missing Ravenwood I talked about earlier. Turns out the dad is dead and Indy is hoping to hell that Marion has any fucking idea what happened to the medallion. Indy leaves, and we see that she has the medallion on her necklace, and it seems like that'd be really fucking uncomfortable to wear in your cleavage, or wear even if you don't have cleavage, but honestly, the bigger the boobs, the more uncomfortable it would be. Then the bad guys show up at Marion's bar after Indy leaves, and they are also looking for the medallion. God, this main dude, Tote, is such a fucking creep. Marion's giving him the runaround and playing dumb about the medallion, but seriously, this guy could never not play a villain. Ever. He doesn't really even have a protagonist's face at all. I don't think he could pull off being a regular guy. They go to torture Marion to learn where the medallion is, and Indy surprises everyone and fucking comes back to save the day. And we get a great barroom shootout that's pretty awesome. Shit's on fire and whatnot, and everyone's scrambling to get to the medallion. The odds are stacked against our heroes, Indy and Marion, but they're fighting anyway. Tote almost gets the medallion, but it's hot from the fire and burns an imprint on his hand. Don't you just fucking hate when you touch something and you don't realize it's hot and it's like it takes your body a couple of seconds just to process how hot it is and you've already burned yourself by then? God, that pisses me off. So Marion tells Indy that until she gets the money he owes her, she's his partner, and I don't really want to get into what the story is on the money that Indy owes Marion because it mostly just doesn't even fucking matter a little bit, and it's just an excuse to have Marion come with him. So they're elsewhere now. I guess you could say it's Cairo if you want to get specific about it. It's kind of like Indy and Marion are making eyes at each other already, which... I mean, come on, Marion. Stand your fucking ground for longer than that, girl. You just wanted to fucking kill this guy yesterday when you saw him. Don't fucking forget about that. Plus, the whole him banging her when she was too young kind of ruins it for me. If she were a much older woman and he banged her when she was maybe 60, that'd be fine, of course, but not this shit. So Salah, a friend of Indy's, says that death always surrounds the Ark and all the stories, which seems pretty bad if you ask me. 
Salah lets us know that bad guy Belloc is working with the Nazis, which makes him worse than previously realized. We know that the Ark has moved all over and nothing good seems to happen when it's discovered, but people keep trying to find it anyway. Marion finds a monkey and it runs away and it's like, darn, nothing better than a stupid fucking monkey doing stupid monkey shit. I honestly don't care for monkeys in movies or TV, especially Ross's monkey, Marcel, on Friends. It was such a Ross thing for him to get a monkey, but that didn't make it acceptable or entertaining to watch at all. I really didn't care for it. Anyway, it appears that the monkey was a double agent. I don't know. He went and hung out with what looks to be some bad guy based on the music cues after leaving Marion. What happens is this monkey leaves Marion and Indy when the monkey sees what I guess is her master. The monkey is a girl, by the way, and actually gives the Heil Nazi salute to her master when she gets to him, which is fucking hilarious. Like, imagine being a trainer who painstakingly shows a monkey how to do the Nazi salute thing. But anyway, I got curious and googled this particular monkey, and this shit is fucking ridiculous. My god, I didn't know what I expected, but it wasn't this. This monkey was assigned to follow Indy and Marion and get the headpiece to the staff of Ra and bring it back to her master. The monkey's voice was provided by veteran voice actor Frank Welker, who is known for having voiced Scooby-Doo and Abu from Aladdin, among others. It's like, holy shit, I caught some of what was going on while I was watching, but I didn't realize quite how much I was supposed to really be taking from what was going on there with the monkey, you know? We see what appears to be an evil man emerge, and a big fight breaks out, and it is important to note that none of these actors are in any real danger, usually. It's actually just an illusion for the audience. Except for Harrison Ford, who was injured multiple times while performing stunts on this flick. Now our fight has turned into a chase, and Marion thought it was a cool idea to hide in a fucking basket, and oh my gosh, we get this scene. A man confronts Indy and makes a big show with his sword, then Indy just fucking shoots him like a boss. Little bit of trivia on that, the famous scene in which Indy shoots a marauding and flamboyant swordsman was not in the original script. Harrison Ford was supposed to use his whip to get the sword out of the attacker's hands, but the food poisoning he and the rest of the crew had gotten made him too sick to perform the stunt. After several unsuccessful tries, Ford suggested shooting the sucker, and Steven Spielberg immediately took him up on the idea and the scene was successfully filmed. I've seen this movie a handful of times before, but it's been a while since my last viewing, so a lot of this almost feels new, which is kind of nice because I'm not gonna remember all of what to expect around every corner. I know some major moments and stuff like that, but it's kind of cool seeing it anew. The monkey tells the bad guys that Marion is in the basket, so they take the basket with Marion in it, so Indy is trying to catch them, and it's a pretty hilarious chase. Marion keeps yelling Indy's name, and he's kind of like moving based on where the sound comes from, like a game of Marco Polo or something. He ends up thinking that she's dead, and he does this whole sad sack drinking bit at the bar, but it doesn't last super long because these men come to take him to Belloc. Would you believe that the villain Belloc is actually still not a real likable guy now that we know he's with the Nazis? Shocking. So anyway, they talk about the Ark and whatnot for a little bit, but fucking Indy pulls his gun on Belloc and half the men in the place pull their guns on Indy, but these kids that I'm pretty sure belong to Indy's friend Salah come and save Indy from certain death. 
it's not entirely clear why the children being present stops the bad guys from killing Indy or even keeping him in their custody, but they just take him away and everybody seems fine with it. So one of the kids makes Indy dinner, but a man in an eye patch comes to poison the dinner while no one is looking. It's good to see one-eyed characters getting their moments. Too bad this one's evil. It really paints an unfair picture of the types of people monocular folks are, because I assume a proportional percentage are decent people. Some are lame and host podcasts. A fortune teller of some sort warns Indy not to disturb the Ark after deciphering the Medallion of Marion's. The Medallion also tells them the correct measurements for the staff that they'll need later. At one point, they're able to ascertain that the Nazis are looking in the wrong location. The Nazis are doing all of their searching based on the burn imprint from the Medallion on Tote's hand, and surprisingly, that wasn't the best system to use. Indy almost takes a bite of his poisoned food, but good guy Salah stops him and shows him the monkey lying dead, who seemingly got into the food. They go to a dig site in the desert, and Indy goes down into this temple, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's like a temple, but it's buried underground presently, and almost seems more like a cave. There's this model of the city that he talked about earlier that he uses to determine where to look for the Ark. He uses a staff, and this whole headpiece is attached to it, and the sunlight just hits the right spot in the model through that headpiece, and Indy's acting like he's gonna fucking come. He's just so excited that it's working. He finds Marion alive after thinking she was dead, and I gotta say, Karen Allen looks exceptionally good in this movie, especially in the scene where Indy finds her in a tent. Indy has to leave Marion there and goes to look around a bit and starts digging with a bunch of other dudes. Obviously, this pisses Marion off because she thought she was getting rescued. A storm is closing in as they uncover something, and I gotta say, the storm in the background seems like really shitty blue screen. I don't really know how they pull off storms in other movies without the inherent danger of lightning, but I just feel like they needed to figure it out better in this movie to make it look better. So they find this opening and it leads to an underground temple and there are a fuck ton of snakes on the floor in there. I guess this whole place is actually called the Well of Souls. And I just nope right the fuck out of this place. I wouldn't spend a second in there if I didn't have to. It's just not worth it. So they're letting Marion, who is still captive, have some food back at the tent. Belloc wants her to put on this special dress like some straight up fucking creep with a kink. Then he watches her change in the mirror like a real fucking class act. Indy's rappelling down into the snake pit and he lands staring face to face with a cobra about to strike. Cobras always seem so fucking uncomfortable. It's like they have to crane their neck pretty much at all times when they're not just going on about their business with their little hood closed or whatever. Indy sprays gas on a bunch of the snakes and lights them on fire, officially making him a true hero. Marion decides to play a drinking game with the bad guy Belloc. She pretends to be getting drunk and tries to get away with a knife, but our friend with the burnt hand, bad guy Tote, is fucking right there, of course. Meanwhile, Indy and Salah are uncovering the fucking Ark straight up, like the real deal. I forget why they can look at it now, but they can't later. Like, what's up with that? It, it's kind of, actually, now that I think about it, it's dawning on me that 
Maybe they have to do a ritual or something to make it an eyes-off occasion. Just as Indy's about to get out, the bad guys throw the rope down into the temple so he can't get back out. They also throw Marion in, and she is initially pissed at Indy and starts pissing and moaning, and then legitimately freaks the fuck out about the snakes, which is exactly what I would do. Then they close up the only way out, and Marion and Indy have to figure out a way to escape. God, these fucking snakes just give me the willies this entire time. I don't know what it is about them, you know, it's just, I don't, no matter what size or color, I hate them all. A little bit of trivia on the snakes, so... The Well of Souls scene required 7,000 snakes. The only venomous snakes were the cobras, but only one crew member was bitten on set by a python, which I guess is okay since that crew member probably had it coming. A little bit more trivia, to achieve the sound of thousands of snakes slithering, Ben Burt, who I guess was a sound designer of some sort, stuck his fingers into a cheese casserole, and then this was augmented by applying wet sponges to the grip tape on a skateboard. All right. Indy tips over a statue and we get like two seconds of the killer theme song, but it's literally just a couple of seconds and it's just done out of nowhere and it is a really big letdown. Then Marion just goes and hangs out in a room full of fucking skeletons that are all wrapping around her and shit, but they figure out a way to get out regardless. We get a fucking sweet fight between Indy and a huge guy by these airplane propellers. Naturally, Indy is outmatched against the big guy, and of course, he has to be shirtless for added intimidation. Marion hops in the cockpit, and she can't stop the plane from being out of control, but she provides cover by way of a machine gun a little bit. Of course, it ends with the big guy getting hit by a propeller, and honestly, it's the only way you'd want it to end. It's fucking incredible. So, they're gonna chase after the Ark some more now. I guess Indy decided to steal a horse to chase it, and that was probably because it was all he could get, I guess? Great fucking chase, though. Catching up to and taking over this truck. A little bit of trivia on that. The truck chase sequence took five weeks to film for six minutes of screen time. I'm always curious what the total damage done in movies might be. I wish there was a database for that, but I don't think there is because someone would obviously have to figure it out and it wouldn't really gain them anything. When I googled the amount of damage done in movies, I came across an article that said Dwayne Johnson has an estimated $12 trillion in damage done in his movies. It ends up being a long fucking chase, so we get extra John Williams, which is nice. They wind up with the Ark, and they're on a boat. Indy says the line, It's not the years, honey, it's the mileage, and it's such a great line before Indy and Marion are about to almost bang it out for old time's sake. But of course, we don't get that moment because the ship they're on gets boarded by the Nazis, and the Nazis are stealing the Ark again, and I can't help but wonder if they'll foolishly not make sure Indiana Jones is dead or, at the very least, doesn't follow them. Indy hops aboard the U-boat the Nazis came in, and it seems like a questionable move. He basically goes undercover as a Nazi and follows them, and I kind of rather die than have to put on a Nazi uniform, to be honest. Eventually, we wind up in the desert area, kind of sort of between some mountains, and Indy has a showdown with the Nazis. He's threatening to blow up the Ark with a bazooka, but they call his bluff, and Indy caves, and they take him captive with Marion. And the million-dollar question is, what on earth could be a sensible reason to keep Indy and Marion alive if you're the Nazis at this point? They start to do a test ritual with the Ark, and I think 
they want to make sure that it's real before showing it to Hitler. He was notoriously a stickler about not being brought faulty arcs. I guess I don't know why this thing is called an arc if that giant ship that Noah had was also an arc. I looked it up and naturally there are multiple definitions for arc and it includes one that is basically fitting to this relic. What bothers me though is how seemingly infinite the number of different combinations of letters there are to make new words, and yet we have all of these fucking homonyms. I don't get it. Indy tells Marion to shut her eyes and not look at it because he figured out that people were always looking at it in the old stories, and maybe that's what killed them. The fucking arc zaps and kills everyone who's looking. Son of a bitch, Indy was fucking right. Tote gets his fucking face melted off. It's kind of a cool effect. I think they made a head out of wax and then filmed melting it with a heat gun and then time-lapsed it and sped it up. So all of a sudden, the arc is covered again and reseals itself and everyone who was looking is gone. Like, even their bodies disappear. Back with the army intelligence agents that sent Indy on this trip to begin with, they won't tell anyone where the Ark is or who's researching it. Their only answer to the question about who's researching it is top men, and then he like doubles down on that and says, top men. We just basically see it getting wheeled off in a crate to a warehouse with millions of other unmarked wooden crates, and that's the end of the movie, and You know, I watched this on Amazon, and I was curious, why in fuck's name does Amazon have this listed as horror? I don't understand that. I mean, sure, there are some horror aspects to this movie, maybe, but it's definitely not a scary movie. And if you think this is scary enough to be horror, you deserve to be frightened just to hopefully toughen you the fuck up. So praise for this movie. The sheer excitement of it all, the story is enthralling and enchanting, the different sets and locations are great, the score really evokes the adventurous tale and the era in which it takes place. It's still one of the best adventure movies, if not the best adventure movie of all time. For my criticism, the whole Indy allegedly banging Marion when she was presumably underage is tough to look past, and they basically force us to do that. So moving on to trivia, freeze-framing during the Well of Souls scene, you can spot a golden pillar with a tiny engraving of R2-D2 and C-3PO from the Star Wars saga. They also are on the wall behind Indy when they first approach the Ark. In 1999, Raiders of the Lost Ark was added to the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. It is the only Indiana Jones film to have ever been inducted. Films are chosen for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Most of the body blow sounds were created by hitting a pile of leather jackets with a baseball bat. The spirit effects at the climax were achieved by shooting mannequins underwater in slow motion through a fuzzy lens to achieve an ethereal quality. Indiana Jones' kangaroo hide bullwhip was sold in December of 1999 at Christine's Auction House in London for $43,000. His jacket and hat are on display at the Smithsonian. The VHS was actually the best-selling VHS of all time by September of 1985, after one million copies had been sold, and it's now since been surpassed by several other movies. John Williams had actually written two themes for this film. He played them both for Steven Spielberg on the piano, and Spielberg loved them so much that he suggested that Williams use both of them. He did, and the result was the famous Raiders March, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, who did not perform in any more Indiana Jones films. The march has become one of the most popular movie themes of all time. 
Despite having the dream team of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg behind it, it was initially turned down by every studio in Hollywood. Only after much persuasion did Paramount agree to do it. George Lucas made what was at the time an unusual deal for the film. The studio financed the film's entire $18 million budget. In exchange, Lucas would own over 40% of the film and collect almost half of the profits after the studio grossed a certain amount. It turned out to be a very lucrative deal for Lucas. Paramount executive Michael Eisner said that he felt the script for this film was the best he had ever read. The mind chase scene that wound up being in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from 1984 was supposed to be in this film, but time constraints eliminated this possibility. The movie has produced three sequels, Temple of Doom from 1984, The Last Crusade from 1989, and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull from 2008, with a fifth film in the series in production currently. The original cut of this film was nearly three hours long. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 115 minutes, budget 20 million, opening weekend 8.3 million, worldwide gross 389.9 million, which made it the highest grossing film of 1981, by the way, IMDb rating 8.4, Rotten Tomato Critics score 96%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 96%, personal rating, five out of five stars. I love it. It's the epitome of a perfect adventure tale. It's so great. It's so well done. Everything is fucking awesome in it. I can't complain about anything really. All right. So we'll start on Jurassic Park released on June 11th, 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. In his filmography after 1993, a select few movies, The Lost World Jurassic Park, which is the direct sequel to this movie, I don't know, I've seen this movie, but I don't remember it at all, and I won't revisit it because I feel like it probably sucked. He did Saving Private Ryan, which has some amazing visuals and battle scenes worth watching for that reason, and the sheer number of established and -and up-and-coming stars that are in the movie is amazing. He made Minority Report, which is the ultimate movie that I would say I'd love this so much more if there was almost anyone other than Tom Cruise in it. Catch Me If You Can was previously covered on this podcast, and it's amazingly watchable and highly enjoyable. He also did Ready Player One fairly recently. It was a highly enjoyable video game-centric movie that really keeps your attention, and it's really well done. For the writers, we have Michael Crichton and David Kep. This is based on the novel Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Universal Pictures paid Michael Crichton $2 million for the rights to his novel before it was even published. For the producers, we have Kathleen Kennedy and Gerald R. Molan. Currently, Kathleen Kennedy is the president of Lucasfilm and also co-founded Amblin Entertainment with Steven Spielberg and her husband, Frank Marshall. Gerald R. Molan has worked on other Steven Spielberg movies and collaborates frequently with Kathleen Kennedy. For the score, we have composer John Williams, still the goat that has not changed since Raiders of the Lost Ark. For the cast, we have Sam Neill, who plays paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant. He was in The Hunt for Red October, which is a great dad movie, legitimately wonderful. I can't recommend that movie enough. It's so great. He was in Hunt for the Wilder People, and I just happened to check that out on Netflix or something one day, and it's a hilariously great movie, and I just 
I took a chance on it and it paid off. And that's why you got to do that sometimes. Then we have Laura Dern, who plays paleobotanist Dr. Ellie Sattler. And she was in Star Wars The Last Jedi, which is one of the worst Star Wars movies ever. Maybe even more terrible than the prequels. And that's really saying something. She was also in Marriage Story. And she's unreasonably confident and attractive in that one. It was just wildly unrelatable for me, so I didn't enjoy it. I I don't have the experience with marriage, so sorry. Next up, we have Jeff Goldblum, and he plays mathematician and chaos theory expert Dr. Ian Malcolm. He was in The Right Stuff, which I still need to sit down and watch this, but it's also like three hours and 15 minutes long, so who knows when I'll actually break down and watch that one. But of course, I bought the movie already like a fucking idiot. He was in The Fly, which is a super bizarre movie. I honestly can't recommend it, despite it not being really terrible. It's just, it's David Cronenberg. He has a certain way with movies, and you know, it's just, it's weird. So then we have Richard Attenborough, who plays Dr. John Hammond, and he was in The Great Escape, which is an all-time classic with the late, great Steve McQueen. We have B.D. Wong, who plays Dr. Henry Wu, and he was in the Jurassic World movies. He came back as the same character. He was also in Law & Order SVU as a series regular. Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie, and this was one of his first decently big roles. And he plays Ray Arnold. And I'm not going through the entire fucking Samuel L. Jackson filmography. Thank you very much. I think you all know who he is and what he's done. And I've talked about him on the podcast before. Definitely in my Unbreakable episode if you want to check that out. So for casting notes, we have William Hurt and Harrison Ford were offered the role of Dr. Alan Grant. Jim Carrey auditioned for the role of Dr. Ian Malcolm. Robin Wright was offered the role of Dr. Ellie Sattler, but turned it down. Gwyneth Paltrow and Helen Hunt auditioned for the role of Sattler. Christina Ricci auditioned for the role of Lex Richards. Sean Connery was considered for the role of Dr. Hammond. For the plot synopsis, we have genetic scientists devise a way to bring living dinosaurs back from millions of years of extinction and feature them in a wildlife park until the creatures escape their enclosures and wreak havoc on those who are still in the facility. All right, let's dive right into the plot of this movie. Okay, so I was thinking that this movie started a different way, and I realized that I was definitely wrong about that. I thought that we watched the bull being dropped in to be devoured by the T-Rex at this moment, but no, that doesn't happen. So it tells us that we're on Isla Nublar, which is 120 miles west of Costa Rica. There's something in this giant crate, and they open it, and some dude fucking dies getting attacked by the thing. And we find out later that it's one or more velociraptors. But this is only the first example of them just not establishing a good, safe process for whatever it is they're doing. Later on, this guy comes and wants to inspect the island because of the accidental death of the guy from the beginning, and he's treated very dismissively at first. Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler are doing a dig, trying to figure out what they found, and it turns out to be a velociraptor. Apparently, this particular species is a specialty of Grant's. He points out that dinosaurs may have actually more in common with birds than reptiles. So, fun fact, they recently discovered in real life that a lot of dinosaurs probably had feathers, and that's, you know, just something that they didn't actually realize before. There were these dinosaurs that they thought looked a certain way, and they didn't realize they actually probably had feathers. So this kid is trash-talking Grant at this dig, and I gotta ask, who the fuck's kid is this, though? 
Why is he here? His douchebaggery needs to be put in check by a real live fucking adult who is his legal guardian. And I find it amusing that my phone says that douchebaggery is a word and it just doesn't feel like it would be. Grant decides to frighten the child to put him in his place, but explains how bad the velociraptor would basically fuck him up in real life, which is 100% true. Sattler gives Grant shit afterwards for not just pulling a gun on the fucking kid, which is fair to say as a way to mock him. Grant talks to Sattler, who I guess is his love interest, but it's one of those subtle deals where they don't really show it, but they're probably the type of people that would be pissed at each other if they started dating someone else. But I mean, have they had sex before? That's the real question. Apparently in the novel, Sattler was actually Grant's student, and they weren't romantically involved with each other. And I'll be honest, the romance is barely there. It's way too fucking subtle. Dr. Hammond shows up in a helicopter... He's the guy funding the dig that they're doing. Hammond tells them all about this park that he owns and he wants them to see and they're apprehensive. I think the biggest problem this movie has is it's just like Jeff Goldblum with the big personality and it's just an eccentric personality really. Everybody else has these really vanilla fucking behaviors. Hammond offers to fund Grant and Sattler's dig for three more years if they come to see his park, which they obviously say yes to because what's the worst that could happen? Oh right, here comes that scene from the meme. See? Nobody cares. Wayne Knight, who I will most definitely be referring to as Newman, is here with some guy dealing embryos and stuff. Apparently Newman is Jurassic Park's head computer programmer and has been bribed to sell embryos by a man who works for Hammond's corporate rival. He's doing bad stuff and is going to cause problems, and that's really all you need to know, honestly. We meet Dr. Malcolm because every character in this movie has a fucking PhD, I guess. According to Wikipedia, he is supposed to be a mathematician who is an expert in chaos theory, and he was hired by the insurance lawyer to dissect Jurassic Park and find any potential problems. He gets super flirty with Sattler when he meets her, and I mean, Laura Dern is definitely flirt-worthy in most films that she's in that I've seen, especially Marriage Story like I was talking about. God, the score is just fucking wailing in this moment, of course. It's just fucking great. John Williams, you're a gift. Everything all around is guarded with high-voltage fences that obviously go super high up because most dinos are big. Hammond is dealing with the inspector guy. Grant has such a fucking boner for these dinos, and he knows Sattler wants in, so he's fucking forcing her to look because she's not paying attention at all. So they get unreasonably close to a long neck. And by the way, I don't know dino names, so I'm just going to go with how they refer to them in The Land Before Time for this plot walkthrough and review. For those who don't know, The Land Before Time is an animated feature film that stars multiple young dinosaurs who seek to find their families and safe haven in a valley. Littlefoot is the main character, and he is called a long neck because of his longer than average length neck. Sarah is called a three-horn because she has three distinct horns on her head, and she is honestly the biggest ass face you'll ever fucking meet. But do yourself a favor, there's an adorable little character named Ducky, and I need you to never, ever look into what happened to the child actress that played Ducky to save yourself some of your innocence. I refuse to learn anything new about dinosaurs from this movie, is what I'm saying, so... 
basically the land before time is what you're getting. Obviously, the scientists want to know how Hammond did this, you know, bringing the dinosaurs back. So he's going to show them. He has them watch this movie where they basically give the explanation of getting dino DNA from ancient mosquitoes trapped in amber and use the DNA to basically clone them. Trivia, the Mr. DNA cartoon was Steven Spielberg's way of condensing much of the novel's exposition into a few minutes. But I've heard this is actually not possible because the DNA would still break down in amber or something. Like, they legitimately debunked this because people were clamoring so hard for dinos. And an important note would be that they found gaps in the dino DNA, so they filled them in with DNA from frogs and amphibians and such. We meet B.D. Wong, who is one of the scientists preparing new dino eggs. Fun fact, despite B.D. Wong's high billing in this film, he actually has less than two minutes of on-screen time. They watch a dino egg hatch... Wong explains that the dinos can't breed at the park because they're all female. Malcolm explains that what they're doing to prevent breeding won't work because life, uh, finds a way, as he says. And it's remarkable that Hammond went to such great lengths to bring Grant and Sattler there so he could fucking ignore all of their warnings and whatnot. They then watch as a bull is being fed to a ferocious creature we can't see. This is how I thought the movie started. I'm just thinking at this point that there is not one person in this movie that I identify with or relate to at all. But what I can say for sure is I definitely do not relate to Dr. Hammond. I guess the dinos have been systematically checking the fences for weaknesses, never striking in the same place twice according to the park staff. Seems like it'd probably turn out to not be a big deal at all. Don't even worry about that, guys. Hammond seems like he wants to make the park accessible to as many people as possible, but this other guy thinks that it should be a high-dollar rich people park. Malcolm is really vocal about how much he doesn't like everything about this whole dealie. Hammond seems very naive about the whole thing. The scientists are all opposed, it seems. Hammond is not really likable, in my opinion. He's a complete fucking idiot and honestly a bit of a turd. Boy, I really fucking turned on poor Hammond there. Oh well, I stand by it. We meet Hammond's grandkids, Lex and Tim, and Grant seems horrified because he's not a kid fan. This kid Tim is fucking in love with Grant, though, and it's adorable how much Grant hates it. So basically, he's read Grant's books and all this shit. Tim's sister Lex is older than Tim and is apparently a computer hacker, which couldn't possibly come into play later at all. They're riding in these automated electric jeeps that are on metal tracks that take them throughout the park and stop at different exhibits. They stop to look at a sick three-horn, like one that's actually ill. They want to figure out what's wrong with it, and it's almost like keeping wild animals in captivity for idiots to gawk at is also a bad idea with prehistoric creatures. Uh-oh, Newman's gonna fuck shit up. He's already messing with stuff, and you can just tell that he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing by the stupid look on his face. At almost an hour in, I've got to say that the pace of this movie was pretty fucking slow. They really need to give us more in the first half than what we got to satiate us. But I know what's coming will be a good payoff, and I just could have gone for a shorter first half. But anyway, you basically just know that something's going to happen with Newman's horse shit. He's stealing these embryos, it's starting to storm, and they've stopped unexpectedly in the jeeps before getting back. 
It's important to note that most of the park employees have left the park by boat because of the storm, basically. And it almost seems like when the park employees leave, everyone else should too, but they don't. Newman deactivates part of the park's security to be able to get to the embryos, which are under lockdown. The rain was a really nice touch for the suspense leading up to the dinos escaping and making it extra spooky. The vibrating water glasses are always awesome as the T-Rex approaches and you can see them shaking. It's one of the cooler plot devices I feel like we see in movies. God, I really fucking love how real the T-Rex looks. I mean, to be fair, I'm basing what I believe the T-Rex really looks like on the 1993 film Jurassic Park, so there's that. Neat tidbit, the T-Rex roar is a baby elephant mixed with a tiger and an alligator. Its grunts are that of a male koala, and its breath is a whale's blow. Now, this one, I could see getting labeled horror. Honestly, it's pretty fucking spooky. I remember thinking this shit was scary as fuck when I was a little kid. I just couldn't fucking deal with it. So Grant lights a flare... You know, the the T-Rex is bearing down on him, and he waves it around, and he fucking throws it to distract the T-Rex, and it kind of works at first. There's So this dude is with Lex and Tim in one of the Jeeps, and he freaks out when he sees the T-Rex, and he runs to the fucking bathroom and hides, and basically he ultimately ends up getting eaten off of a toilet, and it's fucking awesome. Question... How would you learn through fossil research that a creature's vision is based on movement? How? How are these people so fucking smart? So they figure out that they can't get the park back online without Newman, who is about to promptly die while trying to come back from stealing the embryos. This fucking poison-spitting dino catches him after he fucks with it for a while. It essentially has an umbrella around its neck, and it's spitting poison so newman meets his untimely demise of course so the girl lex is mortified because the inspector guy just left her and her brother in the jeep alone when the t-rex hit and basically you know it's just it terrified them because he abandoned them and you know grant has to reassure her that you know he's not going to abandon them and grant has to rescue tim who is in a vehicle which is in a tree which does not seem like an ideal location for a vehicle to be in Sattler finds Malcolm laying on the ground where the T-Rex originally hit, and it's such a nice touch where they show the impact tremors, as Malcolm calls them, in puddles and whatnot. Basically, it's just the T-Rex stomping around, and you can see that it's shaking the earth. So they're in a jeep, and the T-Rex starts chasing them, and once they get up to speed, it seems like it kind of gives up. A little bit of trivia, the Consulting paleontologists did not agree on the dinosaur's movement, particularly its running capabilities. Animator Steve Williams decided to throw physics out the window and create a T-Rex that moved at 60 miles per hour, even though its hollow bones would have busted if it ran that fast. So Grant's going to take the kids up in a real nice high tree to hopefully get safe from the dinos. Grant makes this big show of he's doing this you know, call, he's calling the the long necks, and they're just in this tree, and he's just kind of having fun, and they know that the long necks are vegetarians, so they're not super worried about them. And then we see what's happening in the visitor center, and so they've got a souvenir shop in this fucking visitor center, and it just seems like you'd want to get the actual park right before going all in on merchandising, but 
you know, I'm a sensible kind of guy. I, I just think that maybe you'd want to work out the kinks first, but now it'll just serve as a monument to Hammond's failure. Sattler and Hammond are talking, and Hammond is still delusional about the park being able to work. Laura Dern is a fucking treasure. She's all in on this movie. Hammond keeps saying that he spared no expense, and you see where that has gotten him. What a fucking schmuck, honestly. One of these long necks comes to visit with Grant and the kids, and it actually sneezes in Lex's face, and it's pretty fucking great, honestly. Grant and the kids find eggs, and they realize that the dinosaurs are actually breeding, despite them saying that that wasn't possible. This is apparently because of the way they splice the missing parts of the dino DNA with frog DNA, and some frogs can change their sex in a single-sex environment. Long story short, life, uh, finds a way as Dr. Malcolm says. Hammond makes Samuel L. Jackson power cycle the system, which means turn it off and back on again in case you didn't know the name for that. But it's a little more complicated than all of that. They have to go elsewhere to reset the breakers, to turn it back on, and in the meantime, it has shut off the entire Velociraptor enclosure. Grant and the kids are watching as a flock of little dinos are fleeing from a T-Rex, the T-Rex just fucking comes and wrecks these little bitty things. It's fucking crazy. We keep seeing Hammond, and I swear every word that comes out of this guy's mouth is just dumb as shit. He's such an ignoramus in this movie. Apparently, a lot of electric fences won't work even if you turn them back on when dinosaurs have torn them to shreds. Who knew? Sattler is out with this dude that has a gun, and they're going to reset the breakers at the shed. Oh, right, so Grant goes to climb an electric fence, and this is assuming, you know, the power is off, and it's going to stay off, and so he kind of fucks with the kid at first by acting like he's getting electrocuted when he touches the fence, but... You know, it's basically just him coming into his own as a dad, because that's a total dad thing to do. But not all parenting experiences can be easygoing adventures fleeing for your life like this, you know? There'll be tough times, too. I do like the tension building between them resetting the power and the others climbing the fence. It's like, are they going to get shocked to death climbing the fucking fence that they're about to turn the power on to? Who knows? So Malcolm is just chilling with Hammond half shirtless for some reason. Tim actually does get shocked while climbing the fence because they turn the power on just in time for him to not be off the fence. Now a raptor is actually attacking Sattler in the shed where she was resetting the power because nothing could be fucking easy and the dude with the gun that was covering Sattler got his fucking shit wrecked by a raptor outside. Grant comes back to the main park visitor center and promptly leaves the kids alone there while he goes to look for help. And then he finds Sattler outside somewhere, and the kids are just sitting there eating, and they have to flee to the kitchen when they see a raptor come. This is honestly one of the most tense scenes ever. Maybe more tense than the T-Rex scene, but probably not. The raptors come stalking in the dark kitchen, and the raptors look pretty cool, but their feet and the way they walk looks pretty not functional to me. They make mention of it, but these raptors are really good at opening doors, unreasonably so. Little bit of trivia on the velociraptors, dolphin screams, walruses bellowing, geese hissing, an African crane's mating call, tortoises mating, and human rasps were mixed to formulate various raptor sounds. Lex is doing this total, they, they, they finally do it. She's got to fix the computer. So they have Lex do her little 90s hacking. And, you know, she hacks right into the Jurassic Park system and fixes everything and saves the day. 
and this actually turns the phones back on and allows Hammond to call for a helicopter. It really is a mad dash to the finish. I mean, there's 10 minutes to go, and we're not even really out of the woods at all yet. They fucking wreck the dinosaur bone statue exhibit thing. I don't know what that's called. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, a giant T-Rex skeleton on display hanging from cables in a museum, something like that. The T-Rex comes and fucks the raptors up as John Williams is fucking wailing as always, and they're going to escape by a helicopter, and Hammond is all fucking broken up about his failed park, but honestly, he deserved absolutely everything that he got. He probably deserved worse. What a fucking dumb shit. Anyway, that's the end of the movie, but I wanted to mention that I also like watching on Amazon because I can pause and see what actors are in the scene and stuff. But the picture quality is pretty fucking lacking some of the time, so that kind of sucks. For praise in this movie, the visual effects, and so much of them are practical, are so great. I mean, I just absolutely love them. The suspense and action is top-notch. The general terror of these dinosaurs just bearing down on these people is great. And the character development is pretty decent. Criticism... A lack of decently relatable characters, there aren't very many of them. And the other thing I would say is a super slow start to this movie. I mean, I get building the suspense and all that, but we get almost nothing for the first 45 minutes or so. So moving on to trivia, this movie and the book generated so much interest in dinosaurs that the study of paleontology had a record increase in students. Michael Crichton estimated that the screenplay has about 10-20% to of the novel's content, which is his way of telling you to also buy the book. Steven Spielberg received $250 million from this movie's gross and profit participations. Steven Spielberg had hoped to make Schindler's List before this, but the studio made him agree to release Jurassic Park first by suggesting that they wouldn't greenlight Schindler's List until he did. Michael Crichton had demanded a non-negotiable fee of $1.5 million for the film rights and a substantial percentage of the gross. Warner Brothers and Tim Burton, Columbia Pictures and Richard Donner, and 20th Century Fox and Joe Dante bid for the rights, but Universal Studios eventually acquired them in May of 1990 for Steven Spielberg. The marketing campaign for this movie cost over $65 million and included deals with 100 companies to market around 1,000 products. These included three Jurassic Park video games by Sega and Ocean Software, a toy line by Kenner, distributed by Hasbro. There were McDonald's dino-sized meals and a novelization of the movie for young children. I love when they novelize a movie based on a book, but I'm guessing it was, you know, probably because it was for kids, because I'm guessing Michael Crichton's book is probably pretty adult. Jurassic Park is actually the fifth best-selling VHS tape of all time. Behind first was The Lion King, then Aladdin then Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and then Titanic. For info and ratings, we have a runtime of 127 minutes, a budget of 63 million, an opening weekend of 47 million, worldwide gross 1.109 billion, IMDb rating 8.2, Rotten Tomato Critics score 92%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 91%, personal rating 4.5 out of 5 stars, 
it's just for the slowness of the beginning, but I absolutely love this one too. So, you know, don't be hating. All right, everyone. Well, that was our Spielberg showcase for the day. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had a good time recording it. And I guess, uh, you know, obviously, if you have any suggestions or requests, send them my way and I'll, I'll entertain them. I won't necessarily do them, but I'll entertain them. All right, everyone. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.